you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Done. Hey, Gabby Dunn, bad with money. You know the drill. Sorry if my voice sounds a little crazy. I spent a week at a camp where I was screaming. It's cooler than it sounds. Guys, this week we're talking about fun stuff, okay? Every week is fun, right? I wanted to be a little nicer to you this week. Last week was a doozy. And if you've decided, hey, I should just never spend money ever again. I'm going to go off the grid. I'm going to live in the woods like I just did this past week while camping. Well, maybe this episode will be useless to you. But regardless, for this week's show, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how we learn about money. We've talked about a lot of extremes this season, but sometimes we and our money exist in the murky middle. We have some money, maybe not as much as we'd like, but we're doing all right. And we still have no idea what we should be doing with our finances. You've heard me say it before on this show. When it comes to financial education, I feel like there was a class in school that everyone else went to and I was somehow sick that day. Well, it turns out that probably wasn't the case. But there are two general scenarios that might have actually happened. Uno, sad but true, there was no class. Or dos, there was a class, but it was ineffective. First up, we're going to talk to someone who actually learned a bunch of important skills and knowledge about personal finance from her parents. Well, I think I was really fortunate in that I always had this kind of education at home. My parents were really focused on teaching me how to make good decisions about money, about spending. They included me in big spending decisions that our family was making. I still remember my parents explaining to me that they saved up all of the money that they needed before they went and bought a new car. And I remember seeing my father count out like 20 after 20 after 20 to buy this car. So um, I got it when I was really little. And when I had the opportunity to do this as a career after spending a long time in the business world, I just jumped at the opportunity. That's right, guys. We found a unicorn, a financial unicorn. Some of you listening will get that and some of you won't. And it's fine. Don't Google it. You'll be relieved to hear that this financial literacy unicorn now runs an organization that is trying to help more people learn about money and what to do with it before they're clueless and in their 20s. Guys, just think, if I'd known about her when I was younger, the show might never have existed. Whoa, trippy. We'll meet her and hear more after the break. Welcome back. Get ready to meet Nan Morrison. Nan is the CEO of the Center for Economic Education. Did you just see other people that didn't have that kind of background? Because a lot of what we talk about on the show is is people's backgrounds. And I think yours is kind of rare. You know, I didn't realize how rare mine was until I actually had this role. And then people began sharing their stories with me. Even colleagues from my, my business days would say, who had really you know good jobs, would say, I need some help because I, my parents never really explained this to me. And it was really startling to find out how many people struggled with these concepts, which to me seemed so fundamental, like things you would normally learn along the way growing up. Yeah, that was my my big problem was by the time I got old enough and I realized that other people already knew this, I was like, oh, no, I can't start asking now. Now I look like an idiot. 
<laughs> no, you have a worse chance of being an idiot if you don't ask, because then you can really get into trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what so what are some of the things that um, CE does like day to day or big picture even? So the most important thing that we do is we provide training to teachers and resources for them. And the reason is that even teachers are sometimes a little concerned about whether they know enough to be effective at teaching these subjects in the classroom. So we help them out with that. We teach them about the topics. We give them great lessons to use in their classroom. We have a bunch of really terrific resources online on a, in a place called Econ EdLink that they can search and get more lessons for free. And we teach them how to integrate it into the everyday life of the classroom. So it becomes really easy for them to do that. They don't have to make a whole big space for it in the day. Uh, we have folks in every state across the country that work on the ground every day reaching out to teachers in their states because in our country, education is very local. Yeah. And it's like it changes, you know, state to state, like how there's only 17 states that require personal finance. But then, you know, what's going on in those other states? Like it's it's very, very localized. It, it is. And even in some states saying it's required can be kind of meaningless because maybe there isn't state funding to make sure that the teachers are well prepared to teach it. Maybe it's integrated and not very well into another class. Uh, the really great states have uh, a test. Now, I know some people think tests are bad ideas, but right. they do set a standard for of knowledge so that at least if it's tested, it is taught. And that is better than it not being taught at all. Like practical knowledge tests even, like fill out this check, you know? Right. Although I'm surprised to hear you say check because <laughs> I don't think too many people write checks anymore, at least not too many people under 30. And I'm over that. And I don't write too many checks anymore. I said check just because. <laughs> Back when I was young, when I was younger, I was like, how do you, when I first had to pay rent, I was like, I don't know what goes where to Google. Like what, where do you sign? What do you write here? So yeah, what's interesting too, is that I don't know how many of my teachers at school were actually financially literate. So right. it's, it's also like a strange thing because it's a matter of educating these adults too, right? Yeah. Teachers look like every other American. They um, are... They're not paid as much either. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I... We could have a whole conversation about the importance of teachers. My mom was a school teacher and I saw how hard she worked and how much she cared. Mm -hmm. But they do. They do struggle. And in fact, uh, when we do our training classes, they really want to hear from us. They want the content, but they actually really like to have people who are professionals in the field there because they like to ask questions. How, does right. it, how do investments really work? What is really happening in the stock market today? You know, what are the different options for mortgages and what do those actually mean to me? They, they want to understand all of that. They might not be teaching a third grader about a mortgage, but they want to have this confidence themselves so that mm -hmm. they can impart that very strong feeling of confidence and competence to their students. Yeah. So can you explain like what ideally it would mean for someone to leave school, high school being economically or financially literate? So we actually have a set of standards and I think they cover the most important topics. I think kids should understand what it means to earn money and what their paychecks look like, what comes out mm -hmm. of it, which is always a big shocker, especially if you live of in New course. York. <laughs> uh, they should understand uh, what budgeting means and how to make decisions about what to spend and what not. They should understand how to save, uh, different ways that they can do that, what that means, how to set goals, 
life goals so that they can make good financial decisions around those life goals. The language and vocabulary of investments, I don't think most kids are going to run out and be hedge fund managers and need to understand a lot of complicated things. But honestly, you should understand the basics, a stock and a bond and all of the, what a 401k plan is, why it can be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And of course, the most important thing that people have to understand is the power of compound interest. And it's so hard to think that when you're 22, putting $1,000 away that year can really help 50 years down the road. Uh, right. But it can. And, and of course, the reverse of that is if you run up credit card debt, compound interest works against you. That debt can really grow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Debt is huge even when, you know, you're 18 and you're most likely taking out the biggest loan next to what you might take out for a house at a certain point. Like, and you just had, I mean, speak, speaking for myself, like when I took out student loans, I had no concept of interest at all. Yeah, it is. The student loan situation is really tough in our country. It's one of the biggest sources of debt that people have. Uh, I hope that uh, our community colleges and our colleges will do a better job of explaining all the options, what it mm -hmm. actually means, and also to help kids to make the right decisions about these things. You know, when does it make sense to do work-study? Right. And some colleges offer that. When does it make sense to work for a year before you start college? Mm -hmm. uh, when, what kind of scholarships might you be um, eligible for? Yeah, I think um, personal finance should be baked into to school just as a practical. I mean, we used to have practical classes. We used to have like, I don't know, maybe I just read like an Archie comic one time, but we used to have like home ec and like <laughs> welding, I'm pretty sure. Like yeah. we used to have like skills. Right. Um, and so like a personal finance education, like a skills, life skills class, I think would be huge. I mean, would it, it would be, do you guys see it as like different, you know, like, okay, for kindergartners, they learn to save quarters in a jar. And then by the time they're 15, we teach them about stocks. Like, is it that kind of thing? It grows with the kid? It grows with the kid. So actually, one of my favorite activities that we have is we actually teach little kids about compound interest using jelly beans. And I know oh, there's, wow. yeah, and I know that people hate the idea of giving sugar to kids in school, but, but they really get this because... We, they get an opportunity to get more jelly beans for different things that they do well during the day. So that's kind of like earning money. And then they get interest. And what they learn is that if they don't spend any of their jelly beans or eat them, uh, that they get more interest than their, their little buddy next to them who might have decided to spend it on something or to have a snack. So uh, they can actually see the amount of jelly beans in their jars grow over the course of the week. And that gives a really strong visual to them of, yes, it's growing. And I hope that one day that kid is going to be graduated from college or have their first job and have a 401k plan. And when this, somebody says to them, yeah, you can put money in here and it'll grow over time, the first thing that they're going to think of is this image of a big jar of jelly beans. And they'll know <laughs> to put some money away in that. Uh, so we do teach the little kids kids those things. You raised actually two points in that question. The other thing was, like, do we need to have a special life skills class? I think that would be great. But the reality of education today is that the time that teachers have during the day is really, really small. Uh, I happened to meet uh, a really nice young woman and was chatting with her um, after gym class, and it turned out she was a math teacher. So I said, do you have a few more minutes? Because I always want to hear right. what teachers have to say. And she said she was teaching five periods during the day. 
and she was teaching three different grades and within one of the grades, two different classes, which means she has four different preps to do every day. And then she's teaching all day. So she doesn't have a lot of time to volunteer to teach a life skills class or to do an after school class. She is a busy, busy person. But she said, if you can figure out a way to integrate your lessons into my class, I would love that. Mm-hmm. Why? Because unfortunately, a lot of people don't like math. Now, I don't understand that because I was a math major and I love math. But math is a really hard concept for a lot of kids, especially when they get into pre-algebra. So I think personal finance is a great tool to integrate into a class like uh, math so that the kids have real world examples and they can see like how math can be useful. So it's good for the math side. And also Mm -hmm. they learn about personal finance uh, in a subject that they have to take anyway. And that's kind of practical and good. So I think yeah, I hated math. I hated math most, mostly because I just thought it was useless. Right. So this is a great way to show how it's it's valuable. It's interesting to have it come from educators too, because from your parents, you're only really going to get a certain type of financial situation, or like you know, it might keep inequality going because you don't. The kids aren't really learning. Like if the parent doesn't know anything about saving for retirement, then the kid won't get that either. How does learning from an outside educator work to close the gap? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think you raise a raise a good point because some families want, some families just don't have time. Right? right. Some families don't have the knowledge themselves or some families might have had a really bad experience. So I think like everything else, it takes a community of reinforcement. Uh, schools are a great place to be a hub for a lot of services for families be, uh, mm-hmm. across the spectrum, healthcare, you know, education, a whole bunch of different things. And that's uh, a big movement now in some urban school districts. So financial education can certainly be be one of them. And bringing parents into the conversation can really help help a lot. Of course. And, and I think uh, a lot of the kids that I've talked to, teenagers that I've talked to, they see either their parents or their older siblings having a lot of stress related to money and they are very keenly aware of not repeating those mistakes. So I can definitely see a a scenario where a bunch of kids get together and like go and demand better financial education in school. And you know what, if they need help, all they need to do is call us and we can hook them up with their local uh, CE affiliate and they will get the help help that they need to do that. We would be delighted to support them and that cause. Yeah. Is that, I mean, so what's the, what's the downside people say that it costs a little bit of money or that financial education isn't effective? Like what's the, what are the big no-nos that people give you guys? And like, why do you think those aren't valid? Yeah. So I think what we hear sometimes is it takes too much time in the day, which we can solve by integrating it into the everyday life of the classroom, as we've we've talked about. We also hear that it doesn't work. And there has been some research that has been less favorable. I look at some of those studies and say, well, you know, the teachers weren't trained, the resources weren't great. You know, you can look at data and interpret it in a lot of different ways. It's in the eye of the beholder. But there are a lot of other studies that show that it works. So the other argument that we get is, well, why would you bother teaching a fourth or fifth grader this? They're not going to remember anything. Well, Mm -hmm. some 
some wonderful researcher picked up some of our materials and went off and studied a bunch of fourth or fifth graders. And it turned out that they retain a lot of this knowledge a year later. And it's important. You have to build. You know, if the first time you ever are exposed to money or the language of money, the words, the vocabulary, is when you have to take out a student loan, that's got to be the scariest moment in the world, right? It's like it's like reading a foreign language. You're just not going to know, and you're going to be too scared. Absolutely. Um, but but I'm very I I worry about the inequality issue in in our country a lot. And a recent study that Wharton did found that a third of the financial inequality in the U.S. Uh, was, could be accounted for by differences in financial literacy, which I, is surprising and not surprising. It was a big number. Uh, and we know that financial literacy runs along gender and racial lines. So that was really an eye-opener for me. And I think it's just super important in the Title I schools, which are the, the ones that serve the low and moderate income kids, that we really have to get this education in there. We spend mm-hmm. a lot of time making sure, especially in charter schools and other schools, putting so many services in front of these kids so that we can get them to graduate high school, which is the first and most important hurdle to being able to have a decent life in this country. And then we put all these resources behind them in places like Cristo Ray and all these big charter schools to get them into college, to keep them in college, to get them to graduate, to give them some other life skills. This and we don't teach them financial educa- literacy, and we don't give them financial education. This is a key tool in the toolkit for economic mobility. And if we do not include it, we're really shooting ourselves in the foot. We have to do it. It's like leaving out the eggs in a cake recipe. You have to put them in there. Absolutely. Unless you're vegan, then you can. We'll figure, <laughs> then we'll figure that out with. with we're garbanzo. trying to be very inclusive right. here. Yeah. We'll figure that out with garbanzo beans. So that's where we're at now. And I want to make sure your eyes aren't glazing over at the idea of learning math. I get it. You guys know how I feel about math, but this is super important. Understanding how we exist in our financial system on the individual level is basically imperative, and it's not easy. The lack of education can perpetuate inequality, and the fact that the system is basically set up to watch us fail doesn't help either. But how did we get here? I got to chat with Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin, who host the podcast Unladylike, about how this all breaks down along gender lines. And of course, I fell in love with their financial advisor. You probably will, too, after the break. And we're back with Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin, hosts of Unladylike, a podcast about what happens when women break the rules. Like me, I'm always breaking the rules. Don't tell anyone that. I will get in trouble. Since they're experts at researching the history and sociology of the way gender and sexism works its way into our lives, we had them do a little digging into personal finance education. But first, we're going to hear a little bit about their own financial literacy. Oh, we have such different personal finance backgrounds. And yet they both result in a lot of fear. (laughs) It's true. It's true. They all lead to the same place of sheer panic. So... This is Kristen. So I grew up in a house with a lot of financial instability. And my mom was a breadwinner because my dad didn't have a job a lot of the time. And I just clung to this idea really early in life, looking around, seeing like how hard it was on my parents to be 
trying to make it work and have kids and also just like have zero money. And it just became my goal just to make enough to be comfortable. Like I've never wanted to be rich necessarily, but the idea of that struggle that they had really terrified me. And this is Caroline. So money was not discussed in my household. I grew up very comfortable. My dad was a pilot and made great money, but we just never talked about it. I never had any idea of how much money we had. But yeah, no, I, I, everything that I know about finances, which is not much, came from my father. He really like beat into my head the idea of saving. Uh, he uh, used the envelope system. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, what is it? It was something that he picked up from his father. So basically, like you get paid, like let's say you get paid, you know, once, twice a month, and uh, you take out in cash every month, the amount that you have budgeted for yourself for things like food, gas, and entertainment. And once that cash was gone, you were done spending for those things. And he tried to impart that to me, but honestly, it did not stick. Yeah. I mean, so, okay, so you guys then, you you started a business together and you got a financial advisor. So did it help? Did you learn anything there? Okay, so our financial advisor is named Helen, and if Helen were not in our lives, <laughs> we would probably not be sitting here. No. Truly. So the way that it happened, though, was we had quit our nine-to-fives, and I decided to Google around and try to find a woman financial advisor who did not work for a dude and Gabby, it was so hard. Yep. Like it took a yep. really, a really intensive Google search to find Helen. And the first time she and I talked, it really felt like a therapy session because she started asking me all of these questions about my finances. And immediately it just kicked up so much shame. And I kept hearing myself almost just apologizing to the stranger for like me not doing what I should be doing with my finances, etc. So I quickly realized how much I needed a Helen in my life. So I told Caroline, <laughs> Caroline, I've met, I've met a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of the rest is history. So you've been doing research on the topic of personal finance. So when did people start getting interested in learning about personal finance. I imagine it's changed over time, but like women weren't really allowed to be involved as much. They weren't allowed to open their own bank accounts or have credit cards. So like, when did all of this kind of start? Well, it's funny. I was actually surprised to learn that women have been investing and like playing the markets for hundreds of years. That's something I honestly did not know. There was this research, uh, in the Oxford Handbook of Sociology and Finance that looked at, like, the perceptions of women playing the market. And I was like, whoa, 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 before we talk about perceptions, it's news to me that they were even playing the market in England to begin with. And that's something that goes back to, like, the mid-18th century. I mean, I think people just thought of women as, like, taking care of it within the home. Right. Oh, totally. Like, the the most astonishing thing to me in researching gender and money is how much our concept of currency is as socially constructed as 
gender. Because before women really started earning their own wages and being able to legally, if they were married, being able to legally keep their own wages, there was this idea that women were could be given allowances. And it was specifically called pin money. And it the term goes all the way back again to England when uh, pins, as in like old school, like safety pin sorts of <laughs> devices, were um, luxury items. And once a year, wealthy wives would get a pin allowance from their husbands that they would then take and then go buy their year of pins. Because, you know, like buttons and zippers and all that stuff. Like, I guess, well, <laughs> wow. zippers, like, really hadn't come along. Everybody needed some pins. Um, so you get to the 20th century, and women economists had to disprove to men that all we earned was pin money, that we actually were active contributors to our household budget. But of course, like everything has had to be framed like in that realm, like the safe realm of female money, which is, you know, the household money, the the grocery budget or today, like daycare money. Um, so it's like even even if you look at government money. Before we had welfare as we think of it today, it was mothers' pensions. It was widows' pensions. Um, today, with the service industry that's like so predominantly female, we're working for tips. I mean, we just make in so, so many different ways different kinds of money than men. Like, and that we're not even talking about the gender wage gap. So, how does the way that women feel about money and their comfort with things like investments manifest in actions as compared to men? So, like, we've talked about this a bunch on the show, but, you know, there's uh, – you get started late in something and you are – and, like, I think there's also this tendency to think, well, if I'm not perfect at it or if I don't have all the information, I'm going to do nothing. I mean, that's how I felt. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of socialization that leads women to be more cautious investors. We want to take more or we want to take less risk. Um, and we saw a lot of this come to light with the like Wall Street collapse and the Great Recession, where people started looking into like, oh, well, who were who who are who making all of these like super high risk financial decisions that let us into this. Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio. It was Leonardo DiCaprio, the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> uh, but it was it was dudes. And it's of course, it's a lot linked to uh, testosterone and what that can do to uh, lower your like risk taking inhibitions. And I think that there's a lot of gender essentialism that starts to creep into this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's yes, it's it's hard to talk about this without being like, and women are like this and men are like this because obviously like trans people exist, non-binary people exist, gender is like, you know, very fluid. And so like it's hard to to be like, well, you got to, you know, why don't you invest more like a woman would and, you know, and and be more cautious or like even to appeal to women. It seems like it's not even they're using sexism to try to like make us want to do it more in this backwards way. Yeah. Well, and it's also to what end? Like, I feel like we're still working in like this broader economic 
patriarchal model of like, we need to invest so that we can become super rich and super powerful. I don't know. I, I, it bothers me that we are trying to convince more women to invest into an economy that is built for dudes. Yeah. And I mean, the research just brings up a lot of issues of like correlation versus causation. And like Kristen said, the whole gender essentialism thing, because like, yeah, some studies do bear out the fact that like women tend to be more cautious investors. Men tend to shoot from the hip a little bit more. Um, And even Helen said that like a lot of the men and women she works with, regardless of age, sort of follow that pattern, too, where men want to know the numbers. They want to know the day to day. They want to play the market. They want to boost their investment. They want to, you know, get the best return on investment they possibly can in the shortest amount of time. Whereas a lot of the women she works with are more interested in like, yes, yes, yes. Obviously, I want to make money, but I want to know that I'm secure in retirement. I want to know that I can pay my health care bills when I don't have a job anymore. I want to know that I can support myself and my family. And so it's like you look at this stuff and it's not that some of it is not true, but you just have to ask, like, how much of this is stuff that we've internalized from our parents, from society, from culture? And how much is like going to change as we see gender roles changing as well? Yeah, there's that reminds me of this term genogram um, that's coming more and more into like financial education. And it's this idea like specific to money. It's this idea that our financial behaviors and patterns are like super psychological, obviously. Um, And the genogram refers to our emotional associations that we pick up as kids, which I can totally relate to that. Um, But it's fascinating and makes total sense that according to psychologists in this research on money genograms, that from boyhood, guys are socialized to see money as power and freedom, and girls are socialized to see money as symbols of love and security. So it's like, ah, from the get-go, we're just like repeating this cycle over and over again and reinforcing that gender binary that ultimately is like causing a wealth gap. Yeah. So some research says financial education maybe isn't the right way to go. I was reading an article in Mel and an article in Vox, both about how like people talk about financial literacy education, but Uh, Some people say that there's no data showing that it works or that people are retaining it, that it's like very hard to change uh, what people are already going to be doing, similar to good eating habits or uh, exercise habits. Um, So what is more so the argument that that isn't the right way to go and what's the alternative? Well, one of the arguments that it doesn't work and it's useless is that our financial and tax systems are so complex and they're always changing. And, you know, you've got people like me who often would rather just stick their head in the sand until their work wife comes and is like, hey, I got a financial advisor. And I'm like, shit, I guess I better learn something about money or, you know, just pay Helen to keep doing it. Um And so, I mean, that's one argument that like, oh, it's useless. And the way that we do it certainly isn't the best way, like trying to teach it in schools as a one and done kind of like take a class and then you're set for life. Like that's probably not always the best way to go. In terms of what I was reading, it looks like 
the advice tends to be kind of like what you said, Gabby, in terms of exercise and diet changes and stuff like it can't be a one and done. It has to be like a life culture shift where you continue the education and continue to learn and talk about money. Well, and and it reminds me a lot, too, of our just messed up system of sex ed in the U.S. because like it's not really working in part because of similar kinds of cocktails that are happening of like, yeah, there are there's money and there are like basic kinds of things like can you calculate compound interest? Yes or no. But there's also all the psychology around it. And like, how do you teach people to evaluate risk versus reward? And like, how do we account for like our own irrationality with our spending? I mean, it just goes so deep that it makes sense to me that financial education, just trying to teach like the the arithmetic side of it and just the facts um, can immediately fall the wayside when shit gets real. Yeah, I there was this interesting paper that Kristen and I were reading by Lauren Willis, who's basically arguing against this whole idea that has been pushed since the 90s that we should have not only financial education in like high school or middle school or whatever, but that it should be like a big major push and that individuals should take it upon themselves to pursue financial education. And her argument is basically just like, why, A, why take the time to try to educate each individual human person about this complex American financial and tax system when we should be fixing the system instead and uh, not so much putting the burden on each person individually. I feel like there's a happy medium in there somewhere. Like I do feel that there's a lot of benefit, obviously, in financial education and understanding not only how to do your taxes and invest, but like how to even save money and budget. But I I kind of get what she's saying, that it's like it, it is a massive burden for each individual person. And on top of that, it seems like it's in the financial industry's interest for us to remain as flummoxed as we are about the whole thing, because that means they can continue to sell us products that will allegedly, you know, like fix all of our problems. But of course, they don't. So my conspiratorial side is like, they don't want us to know how to balance our checkbooks. <laughs> oh, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't think they want us to know. No, I mean, also just the very fact that if you look at the financial industry, it is such a cesspool of sexism. It has the widest gender gap, for instance. It has rampant problems with sexual harassment. Like the financial industry is not looking out for women's best interests by any means. It's like if you handed all your money over to like the worst frat at school. Yeah. To handle. Yeah. Hey, bro. How did you guys reconcile like, OK, we're going to pay this person to help us? Well, we knew so little um, that we knew it would be worth the money for us to bring someone in who knew what she was doing and could help us mm -hmm. get the business set up and also help us grow that money, um, that it was kind of a no-brainer. But I was super intimidated when I started looking around because when you see titles like wealth manager, I, I just laughed at myself <laughs> like, they, they don't want to talk to me. What the hell? 
Um, so I think there's there's that barrier of entry to even like thinking we're worthy oh, of a yeah. financial planner. Um, and now we're total evangelists. I mean, specifically about Helen because she's amazing. But in the same way that <laughs> we think everyone could use a therapist, I think everyone could use some kind of financial planner. And I think that like in the same way that we treat social work, like that should be a far more accessible resource for people, especially for people like single moms who have very little to work with and who are working like paycheck to paycheck, if that. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, I grew up always with this vision of my father as this brilliant money mind. And he is. I mean, he is great with money and investments. But the thing is, he also works with a brilliant financial advisor who might as well be part of the family. I mean, I'm pretty sure that guy knows more secrets about my family than <laughs> I do. He knows way more dirt about all of our, like, family strife and drama. So you're Michael Cohen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. And and what's great is, like, I've only met him in person once, but he was wearing a trench coat and, like, an Indiana Jones hat. And I was like, OK, I get why my dad is so good with money now. I mean, he has like this financial Indiana Jones helping him out. It all makes total sense. And this should be a more uh, accessible benefit to people. So this interview got me curious. I always had this feeling that like the stock market, financial advisors or wealth managers are only for people who have a lot of wealth. But really, couldn't everyone benefit from a little financial advice, especially if it's such a hard subject to teach in school? Even if someone does manage to teach you well, it couldn't possibly prepare you for everything that happens to your money later in life. But with all of that said, I want to pause here for a second. Because we, as Americans, seem to have a hard time trusting financial professionals. In one poll, only 2% of respondents said they trusted their financial advisors a lot. 65% said they mistrusted financial professionals. And these are the people taking care of our money. Shouldn't we trust them with our financial well-being as we do doctors with our physical well-being? I personally am very skeptical of, of some doctors, but I think skepticism is good in both regards. Look, the point is, I have a lot of trust issues. In this capitalist society, as we've learned, money is important, so we have to trust someone. I turn to Herman Brody, a behavioral economist in the UK who helps financial advisors understand why trust is important in an industry that doesn't feel very trustworthy. Now, if you look at the amount of education and training that goes into the job of being a, an asset manager, for example, and a doctor, and you think about the complexity of the task, you see that well, being a doctor and being an asset manager is not that far apart. So how come that doctors uh, are relatively well-trusted and asset managers are, are not well-trusted? And the difference comes not from the perception of the competence of those managers, but it's a question of the intentions. Unlike doctors who people genuinely believe have the patient's best interests at heart, people don't actually think that the bankers, for example, have their clients' best interests at heart. People generally think that bankers have bankers' best interests at heart. So they fail on the competence domain, and this is the reason they are generally not trusted. As a clear, the, the most trusted profession is actually firefighters. So you give an idea of what we're talking about with these two dimensions. The most trusted profession, pretty much everywhere in the world that this question is asked, is firefighter. When it comes to intentions, who 
were more likely to put the interests of their their clients in that case ahead of their own, if not firefighters. We're all familiar with the old cliche that health is wealth, but we don't often stop to think about the opposite. Because for those of us who weren't born into privilege, the idea that we should be striving to attain it feels like icky. And yet, if you've learned anything from this season of Bad With Money, you know that ignoring our culture's dependence on amassing as much wealth as possible is basically inviting the system to bury you alive. And here's another situation to consider. What if you wake up one day and discover that, through no real effort of your own, you're kind of wealthy? And for all the reasons we've been discussing this week, you feel completely paralyzed. That's exactly what happened to my producer, Lindsay Cradwell, and she'll tell you about it after the break. We're back, and Bad With Money producer Lindsay Cradwell is here with a case study about the bizarre relationship between wealth, security, and disinformation. The case in question? Hers. Yeah, so I was a little stumped with this episode. I had learned about personal finance in school. In fifth grade, my teacher taught me how to write a check, and I even spent a whole day in this fake town called Enterprise Village, where I had a fake job, got a fake paycheck, and got to buy real lunch with it, deciding how much I would save and how much I should spend to get me through the day. This is Enterprise Village, located in Pinellas County, Florida. Population more than 14,000. That is the number of students who go through the world of business at Enterprise Village each year as they put into practice the fundamental principles of the free enterprise system. Enterprise Village is this fifth grader sized town with many versions of real businesses, a TV and radio station, a bank, a pharmacy, and a McDonald's. And each student gets their own job. They live out their day getting a better understanding of how to budget and spend and how to work with other people. Guys, Florida gets picked on constantly, but I'm here to tell you, I learned a lot thanks to this thing that local businesses in my county funded. And it was really fun, to be honest. So here I am, supposedly a case study and the way financial education should work. I got the super practical financial training, and it was hands-on and engaging. And I literally still think about it whenever I write a check today. And yet, I wasn't prepared. The summer after I graduated college, after working a handful of part-time jobs, a large sum of money landed in my bank account. It was large by the standards of most people, especially my age, tens of thousands of dollars just sitting there, and I didn't feel like I'd earned it. I know, I should have been excited to be so economically empowered right after finishing college, but to me, it felt like there were strings attached. This lump sum was one of many payments I've received since that summer, and there's more to come. It's called a structured settlement, if you watched a lot of daytime TV in Florida, like I did growing up, the term probably sounds familiar. I have a structured settlement and I need cash now. Call J.G. Wentworth, It's my money and I need it now! It's my money and I need it now! If you have a structured settlement and you need cash now, J.G. Wentworth can help. But beyond that commercial, and despite the fact that I've been getting these things for years, I have never looked up what a structured settlement actually is. So here's what Wikipedia just informed me. 
A structured settlement is a negotiated financial or insurance arrangement through which a claimant agrees to resolve a personal injury tort claim by receiving part or all of a settlement in the form of periodic payments on an agreed schedule. Which gets me to why this money appears in my bank account like magic every month. And why, unlike the people in those J.G. Wentworth commercials, I don't feel like it's my money. Back in middle school, I was in a car accident. The car was hit so forcefully it flipped. Upside down, wheels towards the sky. And it left my sister and I with injuries, and it took my mom's life. And I basically remember none of it. Which made things even more difficult in the aftermath. Our neighbor was a lawyer, and he helped my family sue the other driver's employer. For that, I had to give a deposition that I only barely remember, but can imagine that I didn't say much. The feelings always come rushing back every time I check my bank account or get an email from Bank of America asking if I'm thinking of buying a house. Or when I think about the fact that realistically, I probably could buy a house. It's hard to come to terms with having a lot of money that I wish I wasn't ever in the position to receive. Or what it feels like it's supposed to mean. This is what it costs to fix this priceless thing that happened. And all of this makes it even harder to know what to do with it. My dad paid off his house and his car. My sister bought a house. And these are decisions that honestly amaze me. They're smart and logical, and it makes sense to invest in something like real estate. At least, that's what people tell me. But it's something I can't see myself doing. It's nice to know I have a safety net, but I try to pretend my savings account doesn't exist. When I go grocery shopping, or clothes shopping, or decide whether I should order in when I don't feel like cooking, I pretend that all I have is my salary of which I deposit a small portion into my savings account each month. Maybe my self-imposed asceticism is prolonging the suffering that I feel like I should be feeling. I'm not benefiting from this. It didn't happen for a reason. When I was growing up, I had this concept of my family being well off. We could do things like go on a vacation, and I could compete in an expensive sport. We were comfortable, and I felt lucky for that. When I went to a private college, though, my perceptions changed. Relative to my fellow students, I was not well off. I wasn't struggling, but I was working and trying to save and doing all I could not to waste the money that I had. And then I got that structured settlement payment. I could pay off student loans. I could easily fork over the extreme amount of money New York City brokers require before they hand over an apartment. An amount that is definitely way more than the place is worth. But other than spending it on immediate needs, I'm paralyzed by the money. I should invest it. I should do something with it. Something other than let it sit there. I know this, and I know I'm being irresponsible. But I can't really bring myself to touch it. And so I keep my structured settlement payments in my savings account. And now in an IRA that I funded with a small portion of the money, but never allocated to anything... That might be confusing to you because this is really a ridiculous thing to do. I went to my bank's investing branch, opened up an individual retirement account, transferred money over into that account, and was sent on my way with a folder full of information on how to choose what investments I want to allocate my money to. And then I never did that last step. Occasionally, 
My dad will ask me when the next payment is scheduled to crash into my bank account, like the uninvited guest that it is. It's something a reasonable person would know. When will that next gigantic chunk of cash hit your bank account? But I never know. It will come on my birthday, this year, or the next, or the one after that, and it will shock me one day when I look at my checking account, and then I will dutifully transfer it all into my savings account, typing in the exact amount my account has grown by, pretending it's not there. We're told so often that a practical, well-informed approach to personal finance is the way to live right. There's training and classes for it. There are general rules of thumb. Advisors can give you advice. But the thing about money that I've learned is that it's not practical. Take my situation. My dad and sister have used the money. And yet, I can't bring myself to. I can't separate what it's attached to in my mind. So I think we can't get so practical in the ways we talk about saving and investing and just generally knowing how to use the money we have. Because when we stop talking about the other part of it, the part where money means something unique to each of us, we're setting ourselves up for a different kind of money shame and anxiety. One we didn't know to educate ourselves for. So guys, folks, friends, buds, think about your financial wellness like you do your physical wellness. If you had a horrible cold or a nagging allergy, once again, I don't have those. I just screamed a lot this week. You probably wouldn't just let that cold or allergy persist forever, right? You'd get it checked out. Unless you're me in my early 20s. So maybe start thinking about your money stresses in a similar way or slash better way. Of course, make sure you trust your financial doctor with your life. We're not all certified financial experts, and that's not our fault. And our financial system isn't really set up to make sure we always make the right choices. Again, not our fault. So why not ask for a little help when you need it? Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who are financial advisors... Whoa, you have friends that are financial advisors? What? I'm just kidding. I have two. I'm very cool now. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, as you heard, Sam Dingman, and Cameron Drews. We're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you, beautiful buddy face pals, next week.